Our text for this afternoon is going to be Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read to you to start here verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we bow, we praise you, and now we plead with you, Lord, because of who you are, because of your mercies, that you would um, indeed empower our study of your holy word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Who are you? Isn't that a great question? Who are you? If, if somebody asks you that question, how do you answer? Do you just give your name? Do you give your occupation? Do you give your role in the family in which you live? Are you, you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a son, daughter? Are you a security guard? Are you an airman? Are you a homemaker, a, a student, just a kid? Here's a more important question for today, however. How do you determine who you are? This is important. Is your identity something you decide based on how you feel? Or is your identity something that is simply reality, fact that pays no attention to your emotional makeup? Let's say that I have a desire to be something and I feel it deep down. Like a professional basketball player. I feel six foot nine, 240 pounds. What do y'all think? Do my feelings matter? Nope. In fact, if I felt that pretty strongly, you guys would probably send me out for help, wouldn't you? My feelings don't determine my reality. No matter how strongly I feel big, tall, and athletic, that is not who I am. Y'all, I could feel like the best bus driver in the world. I wouldn't be. Who you are, who I am, these are determined by facts. Objective truth says who I am, not my emotion. No matter how old or young you feel emotionally, you are as old as your actual physical body. No matter how tall or short I feel, <laughs> I am exactly what the measuring tape says. No matter how wealthy you feel, your wealth can be measured by an accountant who has access to your assets. So again, I ask you, who are you? How do you know? And the answer, dear friends, and I want you to get this, we are exactly who God says we are. Are you willing to agree with that? We are what God says we are. And if you want to find out 
You've got to look to God's holy word, the Bible, to find out who God says you are. So today, we're going to begin a new series looking at the letter of Paul to Titus. This book is brief, it's beautiful, it's pointed, it's powerful. And as we study it, my prayer is that we're going to be reminded that God wants us to function in a certain way at home, in the local church, in our lives. Now, Paul wrote the letter to Titus sometime between the years 62 and 64. As we saw at the end of the growth class last week, how many of you noticed the end of of the growth class, the, the end of the book of Acts last week? Yes, a couple of you noticed that. Where was Paul in AD 59 at the end of Acts? Who knows? Rome. He was at Rome. He was under house arrest, and he stayed there for how many years? Two years. So he probably was pronounced not guilty and released from his house arrest in AD 61. Now, between the times of 61 and, say, 64, 65, Paul traveled around most likely. We're we're guessing here because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what he did. But he seems to have traveled maybe to Spain. And he wrote his first letter to Timothy while he was traveling. And he wrote the letter to Titus while he was traveling and doing what some would call his fourth missionary journey. And then Paul came back to Rome somewhere around late AD 64, maybe 65. But by then, Nero was killing Christians. The emperor had fallen out of political favor with the masses, and he tried to regain power. He tried to regain popularity by blaming the fire of Rome in 64 on the Christians. And Paul was quickly arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. Now let me tell you how we're going to handle our look at the beginning of this letter. The greeting in any epistle, any letter of the New Testament, tells you who wrote the book and to whom it was written. And there's often some kind words about the recipient. But if we're not careful... We'll gloss over these things to get to what we think is the meat of the letter. But the greeting from Paul to Titus, it's inspired by God. It's given to us by God that we're supposed to read and learn from it. And in it, in it, God is going to help us to know who we are in Christ if you know Jesus. And I don't want us to miss it. So as we study verses 1 through 4, We're going to find seven things God wants us to know about who we are if we know Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to make two of them today. You ready? Do you like starting a new book, by the way? Isn't it fun? It just always makes me happy. Point number one, we're slaves of God. You can write that down if you like. We are slaves of God. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 begins, Paul, a servant of God. Now this letter is clearly from Paul. And here, Paul has a word that he uses to describe himself. And the first thing that we read is that Paul calls himself, in the ESV, a servant of God. And the reason this is important is that while Paul calls himself that word In the rest of the New Testament, we find out that God applies that word to every single follower of Jesus. And to get this part of our identity right, we've got to do a little bit of a word study today. We've got to do some homework today, some some harder work today. 
Depending on your particular English translation of the Bible, you're going to see the first word that Paul uses to describe himself either as servant or sometimes you will see bond servant. How many of you have bond servant? A couple bond servants. How many of you have servant? Almost all the rest of you. Anybody got anything else? No. It's only a few that have it. But this is one of those instances that you need the Greek word behind that word if you want to know what's really being said here. The Greek is the Greek word doulos. If you want to write that in English, you could write D-O-U-L-O-S. I'm not giving you all the Delta Omicron Upsilon stuff, okay? What it means, what doulos means, is slave. I want to read to you something from a book by John MacArthur. It's actually called Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. MacArthur points out to us that many English translations use words like servant for doulos, but the word in Greek is always a reference to being a slave. MacArthur writes, here's the quote. Ironically, the Greek language has at least half a dozen words that can mean servant. The word doulos is not one of them. Whenever it is used, both in the New Testament and in secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. If you read through the New Testament, you will regularly see that the word doulos is used for slave, especially in verses that contrast slaves and free people. So 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23. I want you to watch these, okay? And they should come up here for you. Were you, do you see the word there? A bondservant when called. What word do you think that is? It's doulos, it's slave. Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord, or so he was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was, he was free when called, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Everywhere in those verses where the term bondservant is used, it's doulos, it means slave, and that's the word Paul used to describe himself in Titus 1.1. And I think you could imagine, can't you, that in the language of that paragraph, paragraph if, if we just use the word servant, it feels pretty soft when you're contrasting it with a free person. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Or Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. The contrast is being made between slaves and free. Slaves is a form of doulos. And it would sound really strange in that verse, wouldn't it, to contrast, there's neither Jew nor Greek, servant nor free. Doesn't that sound weak to you? Because it is. Titus 2, verse 9, the book we're studying. Bond servants are to be submissive to whom? Their own masters in everything. So closely related to what we read in chapter 1, here in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul contrasts the state of bond servants with that of their masters, and the word used there is, again, doulos. It's a plural of doulos. This is a slave-master relationship. 
in chapter 1, when Paul calls himself, your Bible says, the servant of God, he is specifically calling himself a slave of God. Now, let me pause for a second because I want to be careful not to cause us to lose confidence in our translation of Scripture. That will never, ever be my goal when I highlight a word. I don't do it, I don't do it like this that often, but I don't want you to lose confidence in your translation. God has been very good to us here in America. Let me ask you, how many of you have a version of the Bible in the language you speak? That's a good thing, right? We have the Bible, and we should be grateful. And these translations we have, almost all of them are superb translations. We can and we should trust the Bibles that we hold in our hands. And there are reasons, there are good reasons why the translators did not initially translate doulos as slave when they made the translation into English. So let's ask that question. Why is it that most of our English Bibles use servant when they translate doulos? Well, in our culture... The word slave has some pretty heavy baggage attached to it, doesn't it? In Paul's day, there were two main kinds of slavery that could be understood by biblical thinkers. There was a particular form of regulated slavery in the Old Testament. We read about it in Exodus and Deuteronomy. First century Roman culture, which is probably what Paul's using here, had a form of slavery that was not nearly as humane as was Old Testament slavery. But both Old Testament and Roman slavery, whichever one is on Paul's mind here, neither of those were evil in the way that what would come later in history was evil. But for you and me, because we think in English, well, maybe a couple of you in here don't think in English. <laughs> I'm not making fun. There are actually people who that's not their first language. But for those who think in English, the picture of the American slave trade, which brings out racism and man-stealing and all the rest, all that leaps to mind when you hear the word slave, doesn't it? Whips and chains. Well, God's not trying to tell us that belonging to Jesus is an evil institution. God does not want you to think about kidnapping and chains and Amistad when you think about your relationship to Christ. That's not the point God wants to make with that word. Jesus is not a cruel and unjust master as were the slave traders in the African slave market. One more reason, by the way. In Latin, the word for slave is servus. It sounds like the English word for servant. And so it was natural for somebody to translate doulos with a term that sounds right and which does not stir up the images of un unwilling men and women being hauled away in chains and shipped across the Atlantic. So there's good reasons why they did that. But with that said, we need to understand that the word that Paul here uses to refer to himself is the word slave. What I want to ask you to do is be careful. Be careful not to weigh the word down with the baggage of American history. At the same time, don't soften the word so that when you see, your, see it being servant there, you think of yourself as a farmhand or a maid. 
followers of Jesus belong to Jesus, we are his slaves. Now, one more question. Why do I say we are his slaves? All that we read here is that Paul called himself a slave of God. Well, let's think about who is called, if doulos means slave, who is called God's slave in the Bible. Titus 1.1, Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus. He uses that same word for himself in Romans 1.1 and in Philippians 1.1. Likewise, James, Peter, Jude, and John all call themselves God's slaves as they open their respective books. James 1, 1, 2 Peter 1, 1, Jude verse 1, Revelation 1, 1. Simeon, in the book of Luke, the old man who prophesied over baby Jesus at the temple, you guys remember him? He calls himself God's slave in Luke 2, 29. The early church leaders called themselves God's slaves in Acts 4.29. Paul calls Epaphras a slave of God in Colossians 4.12. Timothy and Christian leaders in general are called slaves in 2 Timothy 2.24. Moses is called God's slave in Revelation 15 verse 3. And Jesus uses slave imagery for his followers. Let me show you a verse here. Matthew 25 verse 21. You guys like this verse, I think. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. How many of you love that verse of the Bible? How many of you pray that it will apply to you? We want to hear God say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? But the word servant there is doulos. If you want to be literally correct with that verse, you want God to say over you, well done, good and faithful slave. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Or John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here again, slave-master contrast is present here. But this time, it's Jesus talking about those who are his with himself as the master. In his first epistle, Peter tells us to live as God's slaves. 1 Peter 2, 16. Watch this. Live as people who are free. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound slavey. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as, do you see the word there? Living as what? And what do you think that word is? Doulos. Living as servants, slaves of God. Our freedom frees us to be God's slaves. That's what Peter says about all Christians. Now in the book of Revelation, Jesus and the angels refer to Christ's followers as his slaves. In 220, 7-3, 10-7, 11-18, 19-2, 19-5, 22-3, and 22-6. So just a couple of times. 
As the book of Revelation draws to a close with the picture of Jesus reigning with his people in the new heavens and the new earth, the followers of Jesus are still being called doulos, his slaves. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed. That sounds good, doesn't it? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, the holy city, and his servants will worship him. Again, servants here is the plural of doulos, slaves. Again, keep the negatives of your picture of American slavery out of your mind for this or you won't be able to handle it. I understand that. It's kind of like, have you guys ever heard of somebody who has a hard time calling God Father because they had a bad father? What does that mean? You think we should just stop calling God Father or should we rehabilitate what they understand Father to mean? We, we need them to understand that God is the right picture of Father no matter what they've seen messed up on this earth. Similarly, to be a slave of Christ is not American 18th century slavery. It's something much, much better. Even in heaven, Christian, if you're a Christian, you are a slave of God. You are joy-filled, eternally rejoicing slaves of God. And yes, we are also children of God. Don't assume that I'm getting rid of that term. We are sons and daughters. God uses both metaphors for our identity. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. This is not an either or. This is a both and. Be careful as well not to think you can avoid being a slave. See, the Bible's clear You are a servant, you are a slave of either God or the devil. You either are a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And it should not be hard to say which you want to be. Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are his doulos. Doulos means slave. In that book, Slave, John MacArthur tells us that there are five key parallels to following Jesus and first century slavery. He says the parallels are exclusive ownership, complete submission, singular devotion, total dependence, and personal accountability. Let's think about those real quick, okay? A slave in the first century was owned by one and only one master, which is the first one, exclusive ownership. Slaves weren't free to switch allegiances whenever the notion took them. Maybe a free employee, maybe even a household servant could do so, leave one employer for another, but a slave had no such freedom. When the Bible talks about us when we were lost, it uses slave language. We were slaves to sin. We had one master, that of our flesh serving the devil. We were not free to be righteous. It wasn't in us. We couldn't change. But when Jesus saved us, we were bought with a price out of the slave market of sin and we become slaves of the Lord who loves us and who died and rose from the grave to forgive us. He will never lose us. He won't let us go back to the old market. He is our new master. Second, a slave is commanded to display complete submission. The life of a slave 
had to be centered on obedience to the will and command of the master. MacArthur writes, quote, The slave's sole duty was to carry out the master's wishes, and the faithful slave was eager to do so without hesitation or complaint. Third, slaves are to show singular devotion to their masters. Slave didn't have a lot of big-time, difficult life decisions to make. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Instead of worrying about my career path or who I'm going to influence on YouTube, a slave was fully focused on doing what his master ordered him or her to do. Again, MacArthur writes, quote, The life of a slave in New Testament times may have been difficult, but it was relatively simple. Slaves had only one primary concern, to carry out the will of the master. In areas where they were given direct commands, they were required to obey. In areas where, they, where, they were, where no direct command was given, they were to find ways to please the master the best they could. Guys, that should remind us of that call of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it reminds us, you cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. Singular devotion. Exclusive ownership. Next is total dependence. The first century slave was neither able to nor required to provide for his own needs. Instead, the slave in the first century depended on his master for food and clothing and shelter. MacArthur would tell you that those were advantages slaves had, writing, quote, Unlike free persons, slaves did not have to worry about finding something to eat or somewhere to sleep because their needs were met they could focus entirely on serving the master, end quote. How does that ring with Matthew 6, 31 to 33? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The fifth similarity MacArthur shares with us between first century slavery and being a follower of Jesus is that of personal accountability. The point is the slave is accountable to the master and to the master alone. Again, last quote here from MacArthur. In everything they did, first century slaves were entirely accountable to their owners. Ultimately, the master's evaluation was the only one that mattered. End quote. How perfectly true, friends, is that of us before our Lord? Whose evaluation of your life matters more than Jesus? Whose evaluation of your life matters besides Jesus? Only your Lord's evaluation of your life matters. Because our culture and our history has given us such a negative understanding of being a slave, all of the stuff that we've just thought about might not sound appealing to you. 
We live in America. We're focused on freedom, right? Okay. So we might think that being called the slave of Christ is somehow diminishing. It's biblically not true, however. The good news of the Bible is that though we used to be slaves to sin, facing the wrath of God, Jesus has rescued us. He rescued us by purchasing us for God, buying us out of the slave market of sin. Christ lifts us out of the kingdom of darkness and he makes us citizens, sons and daughters, and yes, slaves in the kingdom of God. The difference is now we are slaves of a master who is kind, good, able to provide, loving, gracious, merciful, and perfect in every way. Again, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Hear your master. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us follow this glorious Lord. His burden is light. He's gentle in his heart toward us. This is good. Now stop and think. Christian, God's word is clear. You are a doulos, a slave, a person owned by God. You used to be owned by the devil in your sin, but Christ bought you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. We read it earlier. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Remember who you are. You are not your own. Your life does not belong to you. You are owned exclusively by God. You are to submit completely to the commands of God. Your focus and devotion is to the will of God. You may rely completely on God for all that you truly need. You are personally accountable to the Lord, and it is to Him that you will ultimately and eternally answer. Examine your life. The Bible has told you who you are. Do you live it? Or do you see yourself as your own master? Do you serve your master with your time, your treasure, your gifts, your very self? One more question. How do we know how to serve the master? Wouldn't you agree that we need the commands of the master if we're going to follow the master? Where in the world could we find those? Point number two. I told you we'd get two. We're under the authority of God's word. Who are you? You are a slave of God under the authority of God's word. If you're a Christian. Titus 1.1 again says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle... Of Jesus Christ. 
See, Paul doesn't just identify himself as a doulos, a slave of God. He also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle means a person who is sent out with authority. In this instance, Paul tells us he's sent out with authority given him by his master. Paul is a sent slave. The apostles were the men sent out by Jesus in the first century to proclaim the gospel. And unlike you and me, some of the apostles had a particular authority that you and I are never going to have on our own. They were authorized to speak and write with God's authority under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. They could write scripture, authoritative scripture. You are not going to get to write authoritative revelation of God unless you are copying scripture. Now, to understand the role of the apostle, maybe you could think about an ambassador, right? In certain political situations, a king or governor might send somebody out to treat with another nation on his behalf. The ambassador has no personal authority, but the ambassador can make binding agreements with others if authorized to do so by the king. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm authorized to write for the king. An ambassador might be able to carry instructions from the capital city to some outlying city or some outlying colony. And when an official in the outlying city is told by the ambassador something that is now the law, the words of the ambassador carry the authority. And that authority is not based on the ambassador himself. He is not special or wise. But the ambassador's authority is the authority of the governor who sent him. When Paul tells us here that he is writing this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's communicating to us that the words that he's writing are authoritative words given him by God. Paul is writing Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture, true scripture, the Bible is God-breathed. Paul's letter to Titus is God-breathed. And when we read the, the words of a letter like Titus, we are reading God's communication of himself to us. In growth class this morning, Ed asked, why study the Bible? The answer I said that I had that I wasn't going to share in class was, it's the only way that we slaves get the commands of our master. There's a document put together by several scholars called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It says what scripture is so beautifully, quote, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired holy scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Not bad. 
Simply put, God's word, the Bible, is God speaking. And Paul, when he calls himself an apostle, is telling us that we are reading and we're about to read the word of God speaking both to Titus individually and to us as the friends, the followers, the family, and the blessed slaves of Jesus Christ. Do not miss the fact that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the son of God who came and died to pay for our sins. Jesus is who rose from the grave, who's now seated on the throne of heaven. Jesus is the one who gives us life and grace by his blood. Jesus is the one who has adopted us into his family. Jesus is the one who claims the church as his bride. Jesus is the one who reigns forever as king of kings and lord of lords. And if Paul is indeed an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is communicating to us the authoritative instructions, promises, commands, and comforts of our Lord. God has not left us to wonder what he wants. God has not left us to flounder around wondering how things are going to work out at the end of history. God has not left us as wandering orphans with no one to love us or care for us or provide for us. No, in Christ, God has given us everything we could ever need. And God has communicated himself to us in his holy word, in the writings of apostles like Paul in the Bible. Now, put the two things together that we've seen about our identity in Christ. Who are you? Are you a Christian? If you follow Jesus, you are identified by God as being a slave of God who's been given the authoritative word of God in Scripture. This means you've got your marching orders. You've got the promises and the commands of your master, thus your life and mine should be completely submitted to our Lord by being submitted to the written word of God. If we are to be faithful followers of Jesus, we must be a Bible people. Nothing can outweigh the authority of Scripture. No counsel of mankind can outrank Scripture. No command of any government can outrank scripture. No social media fad or cultural shift in beliefs can outrank scripture. No change in society's morality can outrank scripture. No feeling you have deep down in your heart, no matter how strongly you feel it, can outrank scripture. If we are to be the slaves of our God, we yield our first and highest allegiance to the word of that God. And we are reminded of that allegiance every time we see Paul and any of the others describe himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up, I know that you who hear me are going to have one of two responses to what you've heard. This might sound crazy to you. It might sound unappealing to you. It might sound ugly to you. How dare you call me a slave? You might say to yourself, you do not want to be anybody's slave, not even God's. Again, I urge you not to let American history muddy your thinking here. All of us serve somebody. None of us is our own master. 
You never have been your own master. You never will be your own master. I don't care how much you feel it. You will either serve God and have life given to you by God, or you will serve sin and the devil leading to death. You can have God or the devil as your master, but you do not have the choice of no master. I urge you, choose the master who tells you of his love, who calls you to a burden that is light, whose heart is gentle toward you, who promises eternal life and soul-satisfying joy. Come to Jesus, surrender to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and find life. And if you belong to Jesus, you have a new identity. Yes, we're children of God. Yes, we're the forgiven. Yes, we are collectively known as the bride of Christ. Yes, we are slaves of God. Under his gentle lordship, provided for by his mighty power, called to submit to the authority of his holy word. Pray with me, friends. Father, we bow. And here's what we acknowledge. In Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. In Jesus, we are the redeemed of God because of Jesus and Jesus alone. In Jesus, we are the church, the called, the chosen. In Jesus, we are slaves. May we not unwisely think otherwise. God, give us committed hearts that will follow Jesus as the glorious and perfect master that he is. Forgive us, Lord, for acting as though we're the ones in charge. Help us, Lord, to surrender to our heavenly master. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.